0: In the Gospel according to Matthew, Jesus Christ is shown as the true King of all creation who ushers in the kingdom of heaven. Matthew's Gospel also gives us a clear and powerful picture of discipleship with all of Jesus' radical demands on
1: his followers in this hostile world. Today's scripture reading comes from Matthew chapter 2, verses 13 to 23. Please stand for the reading of God's word. Hear now the word of the Lord. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt. He remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to Good morning. Uh, let's pray together as we begin. Lord, we thank you that we can
0: hear the word this morning. We ask that you would do a work in us, that we would be transformed by your power, by the listening to your word, by your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. So, we're continuing on the series of Matthew. And in Matthew, we have had this familiar theme go along with us. And that familiar theme is um, something that we may have been inundated with as a child. This part of the story, however, even though it is part of the Christmas story, may not be as familiar. You wouldn't necessarily see this part that Sung read in a children's Christmas play. In fact, it would be a little weird and awkward when we got to the murder of babies. And um, this is, um, but it's here. It's here. And if we wanted to get a complete picture of what's actually happening, just to take the first part of chapter 2 would not be genuine to what Matthew is telling us in the story of the birth of Jesus Christ. And so there's a lot of pain here. In fact, so much so that it should make us kind of draw back and think a little bit. And that's what I'm asking you all to do as we go through this latter chapter, uh, latter part of the chapter together. There are a ton of prophecies that have been happening and I haven't really shown you every single one. Remember we said there were, there were like 350 plus, and I was even talking with a brother here about how even the star was prophesied in numbers and all that stuff. But if we went through every single prophecy and how, fulfilled, how it was fulfilled by Jesus Christ, it would take a really long time. However, I'm going to propose something. Every time there's a prophecy fulfilled and Matthew says it in the Bible, I think it's up to us Maybe he's saying, stop, look it up, because this part, even though it's a prophecy being fulfilled, is especially important. And just this latter chapter, part of the chapter has three parts, three prophecies Matthew is saying is fulfilled by Jesus Christ. So I want to take it into three movements or three parts in this sermon. So let's do that together. But if I wanted to take, let's say a prophecy is like the strand that comes down from God, right? And then you would have another strand and a prophecy come down. And We said we had about 350, all these strands coming down. If we think that Jesus has been fulfilling these prophecies, just like boop, 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 there it is. Then when we come up to a place like this, it's really difficult. Because what you'll start seeing and thinking is, wait, God knew that because of Jesus, all these babies are going to die, and it was just like I'm sovereign. I ordained it, and that's it. It's a boop, it's a blip, in saying like I knew this was going to happen, and that's it. And then you would take this, and you would think that's really, really difficult. And if it's so, why would Matthew even put that there? I'm going to propose that we have all these prophecies, all these strands coming down. And what we need to see isn't just these blips of fulfillment of prophecy. We need to see what Matthew is doing is there is a thread, a common thread that is going to weave through all these other threads. And these threads are going to be woven together by this common thread. And this common thread is the Messiah, the Christ, Jesus And when it's all flown in together, then we have a fuller picture of what God is trying to show us in the book of Matthew. Especially when we come up to a place like this, you can't help but to think, where is God? When the rough things happen in life, where is God? Um, Some of the things that I liked reading as a child weren't like, um, Bible books. I, I like comic books. And as a kid, I read uh, Dragon Ball. I don't know if you're familiar with that's It's a Japanese comic book with my dad. And so my dad and I would read it, and it would be in Korean, so I knew how to read Korean only because of Dragon Ball and the Korean Bible that my dad made me read uh, every day. So I didn't know what it meant, but I can read it, right? And so uh, another comic book I liked reading was Superman. So Superman was something I particularly enjoyed as a child. As I grew older, I liked Batman more. And it's just, it's just the way it is. But there's this one Superman comic that I can never forget that I read. And it's, it's like a, one of those what-if alternate universe ones. And so I especially like those because you're like, oh, it makes you think. And so in this particular comic book, um, all of Superman's loves, like... Um, Lana Lang or Lois Lane, all the LLs, right? Uh, they, they died, and it changes something in Superman. And I don't know if anybody's familiar with this one, but I have this one at home, and I will lend it to you. Uh, the Bible's more important, but I'm just saying, <laughs> this, in this particular one, uh, it changes something in him. And he starts, he, he, he becomes darker, he becomes more stoic, he becomes more rigid, and he starts stopping every crime that he can. And if he thinks that something is going to happen, he would stop it even beforehand. He would kill like villains now, not even put them into the justice system. He would just go and kill the Joker and things like that. Eventually, it it would go to certain extremes where even his friends were like, this is too much, Superman. And he wouldn't listen, but he would stop every single wrong that he could. At the end, I'm going to spoil it for you because I think 99.9% of you won't care to read it but he gets killed by Batman. That's why I like Batman. No, uh, but he gets killed by Batman because Batman and all his friends decided and they really recognized that Superman can't go on like this. He's going to destroy the whole world. But this, this, this author, whoever wrote this, is going and playing and thinking along a theme that we all are thinking. But sometimes we don't think far enough. We'll just think and stop there. The great philosophers... All thought this, and they will continue to think down these lines. And I'm saying here, this also is presenting itself. If I have the power to stop evil, why wouldn't I? Why wouldn't I stop this? Jesus Christ, God himself, would come down to this earth, and there is great evil as soon as he is born. And you can't help but to think, what is going on here? And if you're starting to think that, great, because that's exactly where Matthew is taking us. And he's not afraid to take us there because God is not afraid to take us there. There are people here in this very room that's going through an incredible amount of pain and wondering too, why, if God is good, why is he letting this happen to me? And that's the question that we want to ask ask and explore today. So today's a little heavy. It's not going to be light, but it's in the Bible and it's right in chapter two. He doesn't wait till chapter 30 and say, okay, you're ready? you ready? Here's the hard stuff, but right from the beginning. There's other movies and things like that that explored it. I know I talked about um, like a, a childish kind of comic book But even adult movies, I don't know if you saw Minority Report or things like that where people could predict the future. And if I knew you were going to do something wrong, we would stop it. But every time people will go along this line, if I had the power to stop evil, wouldn't I do it? And the answer most undoubtedly for all of us is yes. If I could stop it, I would. And you would just continue to think along. the: Okay, so I'm going to do this. Then this would happen. Then this would happen. And every single story and scenario that we can think of, it never ends well. Even when we're imagining it, like Minority Report or Superman or things like that. But we, I think we should look into what the Bible is saying. In verse 13, it says, Now when they had departed, whose they... We talked about it last week. It's the Magi. Magi are people not even Jewish. They were from outside. They would come. They worshiped God. They had no idea that they would start off these series of events that would unfold now. But they departed. And it goes, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. So look at what Matthew is saying. He's saying, flee to Egypt. Get out of here and remain there until I tell you because someone's going to come to kill Jesus. So in verse 14, he goes, he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt. This is important. He's putting little details in for us to start using our imagination, our spiritual imagination, if I may. And if you think about it, what has happened? An angel warns Joseph to take Mary and Jesus, the baby that was just born. So think of what is going on. Just born. All this craziness is happening. He had—he couldn't even get born uh, where he was. He had to move all the way to Bethlehem because they raised the taxes. So he needs to go down, get to a census with a pregnant uh, wife and people are not even like they're wondering how did she get pregnant and all these things are swirling around and as soon as she's born some random strangers come give worship and then they just go and then you have an angel saying you got to get out so he takes his baby newborn baby mother who just had a child and he escapes by night and we talked about this a little earlier But the desert night is not a nice time. In fact, when I was there, even when I put my foot into, through the sleeping bag, and it touched the night sand, it felt like ice. And I had those sleeping bags that said, minus four degrees Celsius is still okay, and it felt like ice so you can start imagining what is going on. The prayers that Mary and Joseph must have been praying, like, where are you? This is insane. Is, is, is this baby going to survive? Am I going to survive? And the trek that they had to make from Bethlehem all the way to Egypt is 300 miles. So now start using that imagination and see what Matthew is showing us. And I'm, I'm going to say, He doesn't give us any extraneous information. He just doesn't say it because it's historical. Every single part is important, especially to the telling of who Jesus is. He gave us two names in chapter one, and in chapter two, he's explaining Yeshua, what that means, and number two, Emmanuel, what that means. And last week, we had a little bit of what Yeshua meant, and today it's about Emmanuel. Emmanuel. And then it says, he remained there until the death of Herod in verse 15. This, is, this was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. And when you're thinking, and you read that, out of Egypt I called my son, this is a fulfillment of a prophecy. So you start thinking, as a reader, what does this mean? What would it bring us back to? It would bring us back to Moses, right? Moses and the Exodus, but out of Egypt, I called my son, spoken by the prophet, who is the prophet that he's talking about? It's Hosea. Hosea said these exact words in chapter 11. And if we could put that up there, we're going to explore. Like I said, every time there is a uh, prophecy fulfilled and he quotes it, we're going to put it up there so we can explore it. And in verse one, it says, when Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. The more they were called, the more they went away. The more they, went, uh, they kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk, I took them up by their arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of kindness, with the bands of love, and I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws, and I bent down to them and fed them. So what is Hosea going through in this series of verses, in this poetic reflection of what happened in the Exodus Hosea is talking about how Israel was freed. When Israel was a child, when they first went to Egypt, how many were there? Remember in Genesis and in Exodus, we did this like uh, Albert prayed. He reminded us again. I hope you remember. There were 70 people that went. But what happened when they left Egypt? How many people were there? There were Over a million. We, we saw that we, even the count was over 600,000 able-bodied men. So we're thinking at least 1.5 million. Or so it starts with 70 And you see this birth of a great nation, and this is what uh, Hosea is recalling. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt, I called my son. Uh, Is it interesting that Hosea would use this kind of picture to call Israel my son? And the answer is no, because even in Exodus 4, I hope you recall, God tells Moses, when you go to Pharaoh, say, let my firstborn son go that he may worship me. He calls Israel his firstborn son. And then if he doesn't let him go, then the plagues happen. So that's how we started the plagues. So all these things must be going, the parallels of Moses' journey to what is going on now must be coming into the reader. And I hope it's coming into your mind too. What does this mean then? Matthew is showing us that by by him quoting Hosea, that Jesus is the full culmination of what it means to be the firstborn son. Everybody else failed. We, in theological terms, call that federalism. You may have heard federal headship. But first, who was responsible is the head, right? So who was responsible? Adam. And then who was responsible? Abraham. They they were given a responsibility, and you see they would fail. But as far as protecting and proclaiming the name of God who was responsible, it was Israel. But did Israel succeed? In fact, no. We've read and we went over. As soon as they left, they failed. They built this calf this golden calf, this cow, to worship and say, this, this is Yahweh. This led you out of Egypt. Not, this is what we're going to call Yahweh. So even from the very beginning, they, they fail. So what is Matthew showing us here? He is showing us that the firstborn son, the son of God, that Israel was pointing to was fulfilled in Jesus. That's how we get started here. So this parallel to Moses' journey to the Exodus all starts off with this son that God is talking about. Even from the very beginning of Genesis and Exodus culminates in Jesus Christ. Out of Egypt, I called my son. Then Herod, in verse 16, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise man, became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem. And in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. So when Herod realizes that these wise men tricked him and won't come back, he goes and he sends soldiers, Roman soldiers, to kill every single baby boy who was two years old and younger. This is a horrific act of violence that we see taken on by Herod and executed against the Israelites. And we have to also start thinking, it's not just Bethlehem, but in all that region, all the people around Bethlehem. But if you do any kind of research, Bethlehem at that time had about 1,000 to 2,000 people Babies, so archaeologists and scholars, they were thinking babies or baby boys that were two years and younger were about 25 to 50 just in Bethlehem. But if we start thinking about outside of Bethlehem, it's got to be way more. But just 25 to 50 baby boys being murdered out of nowhere in the middle of the night is in a horrific event. And now you have to start thinking, this is all the things that Joseph and Mary also must have heard, realized, and now they shoulder, they're walking to Egypt, thinking, God, where are you? And in verse 17, this is what Matthew writes. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children, she refused to be comforted because they are no more. This is from Jeremiah, uh, Jeremiah chapter 31, and so we're going to put that up because that was quoted by Matthew, and this is what Jeremiah chapter 31 verse 15 to 17 says, a voice is heard in Ramah lamentation and bitter weeping, Rachel is weeping for her children, she refused to be comforted for her children because they are no more. But it doesn't stop there. Thus says the Lord, Keep your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears, for there is a reward for your work, declares the Lord, and they shall come back from the land of the enemy. There is hope for your future, declares the Lord, and your children shall come back to their country, their own country. So this is the full uh, section of Jeremiah that Matthew is quoting, but he stops there. And I think it's important that we also stop there before going on through verse 16 and 17, because what is Ramah, what is, who is Rachel, and all these things should come into our minds and we have to start um, kind of going back. Let's go back. In Genesis chapter 35, Rachel is a matriarch in Israel. And Rachel was married to uh, Jacob. Jacob actually had children to four people, so he wasn't that good of a person. But Rachel was the one that he loved the most, okay? So I know a lot of guys are like, yeah, Jacob's the man, but he was not the man. And if you continue to see, because of you know, his excursions, <laughs> if I may, um, he had a lot of problems. But, and it kind of carried through throughout all generations, to be honest. But Rachel is the one that he loved the most. And it's interesting because this particular part is recalled in Jeremiah going back also to Genesis. Rachel really wanted another son, right? Remember she had Joseph, but she wanted another son because all of, you know, the people around her were also having sons by Jacob. Remember this is terrible, but she there was jealousy, there was envy, there was all all this uh pol- like politics inside the family she finally does get pregnant and when she gets pregnant with her second son she goes into labor and the Bible says it was hard labor it's a very difficult labor and when the labor was at its hardest the midwife said to her don't fear for you have another son and then she after hearing this started to die it was so hard that it says her soul was departing she was dying And as she was dying, she was in anguish. Because you have to to remember all the things that were surrounding Rachel when it happened, she really wanted the son. There was all this competition and competing for love and now you need a son to even have any kind of standing in society and all these things are happening to Rachel. And then when she has this son, she can't even like see him because she's dying. And as she's dying, she yells out, this is his name, Ben-Ani. And when Ben-Ani was born, uh, Jacob was so crushed that the person he loved so much would be is dying. He said, I can't call him Ben-Ani. He, I'm going to call him Ben-Yamin, which was very close to sounding Ben-Ani. Ben-Ani means son. Ben means son. And Ani means of my anguish and sorrow. So she calls out his name will be Ben-Ani. And, but he goes, no, no, no. I'm going to change his name to Ben-Yamin, which is son of my right hand. So Jacob changes it in faith, hoping that Benjamin would eventually also help his family situation with all the things that were going on. And so, in this sorrow, in this anguish, can you, can you just take two seconds to imagine this mother who really wanted a child? The sorrow and anguish that she must have had, the journey that she must have had. And when she finally gets to have another son, she dies. Can't enjoy being a mother to this son. And as she dies, the sorrow overwhelming. She cries out, his name shall be Ben-Ani, son of my sorrow. And in verse 19 of Genesis chapter 35, it says, so Rachel died and she was buried on the way to Ephrath. That is Bethlehem. So even in Genesis, it's saying this Bethlehem place is important, significant, even before Matthew. So even in the Old Testament, Bethlehem was important. And we saw earlier in chapter 2, that prophecy from Micah chapter 5 verse 2, it says Bethlehem, if you look at Micah chapter 5 verse 2, it says Ephrathah, right? Which is this place where they were journeying when Rachel died. So think of this incredible pain That Rachel is experiencing and has experienced through her journey. And for some reason, this is brought up, not just in Jeremiah, but in Matthew chapter 2. In Matthew chapter 2, why would this be brought up? And I hope hope that the title kind of gives you a hint. How is God with and relating to his people. Number one, out of Egypt I called my son. He is taking responsibility. He is now going to be the head where every single other person before failed. But he is saying, I, Jesus, am the fulfillment of the prophecy, the Messiah that you have been waiting for. But it's not the Messiah that we thought, right? We thought the Messiah would come down like Superman, swoop down and be like, stop, and everything would pause. But in every scenario that we thought of, if anybody had the power to do that, then our world wouldn't exist as we know it. In fact, I think everyone here would die. Who would survive that onslaught? But you see here, the very next thing that happens is when there's trouble, hardship, when there's a devastating, not just disaster, but crimes against humanity, and we start thinking, this is what, what it means to be responsible. When God gives humanity dignity through the imago Dei, the image of God, but he doesn't just give them dignity, he gives them stewardship. That means he gives them responsibility. So it's it's a fake stewardship. If let's say I gave Kevin here 20 bucks, he's like, "I want to I want to I want you to steward 20 bucks." But I know you're going to do bad, so psych and I take it away. Did I really give him stewardship over the $20? No, I didn't. But God gives not just dignity to humans, but he gives us stewardship and what have we done? What have we proven time after time, millennia after millennia, eons of time that we've been given, we failed and we've used this. Anytime we had a little bit of power, didn't we do it to subject other people under our heel? And this is how God responds. God responds by relating To a matriarch in Israel's history saying, this is my heart. Just as Rachel was weeping for her children, that's my heart when I see this too. When there's a tragedy that happens, God isn't somewhere out there just saying, oh my goodness, you idiots. He's with us weeping and grieving over the things that are happening. That's why he's relating to the matriarch, Rachel. Rachel is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more. That's how much he's weeping when a tragedy happens. And this is what God is showing us in the book of Matthew chapter 2. And where is Ramah? Where is Bethel? And if you start pointing out and plotting the, the lines, F, F, uh. Ephrathah, or uh, the Bethlehem where they were going, is south of Jerusalem. Ramah was where Rachel was when she had Benjamin or Benani, right? And that is north of Jerusalem. This whole journey down. This is where they were going, but she couldn't make it. She died. This is where they wanted to head, but they couldn't die. So you can see there isn't just somewhere inside, but also outside. And there is this kind of picture where God is every not just everywhere above, not just exactly there, but everywhere, even in the surrounding areas. And he's relating with Rachel, Um this is something I hope that we can really get as well. Rachel died. She was on the way to Ephrath, uh, um, or Ephrath, and then she couldn't really make it there. And you see all this anguish, and this is what the Lord also feels. But it doesn't end there. God laments, there's bitter weeping, But he also gives a promise. That's what we need. Verse 16 and 17. Keep your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears. For there is a reward for your work. They shall come back from the land of the enemy. There is hope for your future, declares the Lord. And your children shall come back to their own country. So then there is hope at the end. But how is that hope fulfilled? The story continues. And we go to the last part of the three points. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose, took the child and his mother, and went to the land of Israel. So he takes his child. But in verse 22, he says, But when he heard that Archelaus, he, that Archelaus is Herod's son. Archelaus was reigning over Judea in the place of uh, his father Herod. He was afraid to go there and being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee and he went and lived in a city called Nazareth so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled that he would be called a Nazarene. So he goes back, he wants to go to Bethlehem and he can't stay there because Bethlehem is also ruled by Herod's son, So Herod's son might have a recollection of what his father did and still try to kill Jesus. So I can't stay there. I have to go to Nazareth because that's my hometown. That's the only place I can live, even though I want to go to Bethlehem. So what is Nazareth? Nazareth is this boony, um, just ghetto town that really you wouldn't want to bring up your child. If I were to relate probably to us, you want to send your child to the best school. They didn't have places like Harvard or Cambridge back in that day, it depended where you grew up. So even now in in, uh, Jersey, there's something like that, you want to go to a certain town because they have good education? That's exactly what Joseph and Mary would've wanted. Bethlehem was at least known, the name wasn't that bad. Bethlehem means uh, a house of food right? Bethel means, uh, or bread. Bethel is house and hem is bread or food. And so at least it's a decent name. What's Nazareth? So what is Nazareth? In, And this is really interesting because it ends by saying, um, the passage ends by saying he will be called a Nazarene. And if you look at it, Nazareth, Nazarene, prophets might be fulfilled. You look all throughout the Old Testament and you search Nazareth or Nazarene, you will get how many hits in the Old Testament? You'll get zero hits. Why do you get zero hits? Because Nazareth didn't exist in the Old Testament times. Nazareth is actually about, only about 150 years old. So what is, what, is, what is Matthew talking about here? And if you think and you recognize what he's doing is Nazareth in the Hebrew is from, it's uh, not, there, not or natzer or nazar and it's "N, uh, right? And if you put you that's where you get Nazareth. But in the Greek, they didn't have a t sound. In, in, Jap, in Japanese, they do. Uh, I think if you say the word tsunami, it's not tsunami, it's T-S-U-N-A-M-I, right? Tsunami. So, the Hebrew had a very similar sounding alphabet, and it's tz. So, it's nazareth, or nazareth, or nazar. And nazar in Greek was translated nazar, because they didn't, in Greek they didn't have a, a tz sound, just like in English we don't. And so, what does nazar mean? Nazar means a branch or a stick. So, would you want to live in a town? That's called stick town. You wouldn't want to live there. There's nothing but sticks. In fact, we even have a saying, if you live really far in the boonies, we say you're from the sticks. I I looked it up Urban Dictionary. People have to have that saying, you're from the sticks. It means you're, you're out there, there's nothing near you. There's no Walmart, nothing, right? And so you wouldn't want to live in stick town. You'd probably want to live somewhere better because you want what's best for your child. But that's not what happened. They had no other choice. They had to go back to Sticktown. They had to go back to this place. It's named after sticks. What kind of place is this? You wouldn't want to go send your kid to Sticktown. You, you want your kid to go to Harvard. Especially if this person is Jesus Christ, the son of the living God. Go to Jerusalem, Kent, right? All right, let's go to Bethlehem. That's not Harvard or MIT. I guess that's like a state universe. That's better than nothing. You can't go there. What's Nazareth? What's Nazareth? That's like not even GED level. Why would you send your kid there? You wouldn't want your kid to grow up there, but they had no choice. But where is that in the Bible? Like I said, there's no place in the Bible where there's a Nazareth or a Nazarene. But Nazar or Netzer or that Netzer is there? Where is it? And if we could put up that verse, it's not only, it's in multiple prophets. This is where it says the prophets have said, right? It's in Zechariah, Jeremiah, and Isaiah. All of these three prophets talk about the Nazar or the Nazar. Right, And this is what, uh, I just picked one out of the many. And it says, uh, in Zechariah chapter 6, verse 12 to 13, it says, And say to him, thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, the man whose name is the branch or stick. For he shall branch out from his place, and he shall build the temple of the Lord. It is he who shall build the temple of the Lord, and shall bear royal honor, and shall sit and rule on his throne. And there shall be a priest on his throne, and the council of peace shall be between them both. Who's going to be both king and priest, and who shall have a throne? It's stickman, not superman. It's branch man who's going to take it. And is that prophesied in the Bible? Yes, it is. And that's why it's amazing. Was Jesus born in Nazareth? No, that's why Matthew even specifically says, they shall say he's a Nazarene. They shall say he'll be called a Nazarene, meaning he, we even know he was born in Bethlehem. But people are going to say, he's from Nazareth. Where is Nazareth? No one gives Nazareth any time of day. You don't have a GED. I'm not going to give you a job. I'm not even going to say you're a rabbi, or teacher. And that's exactly what happens in John chapter 1 when they go, Nathaniel, Nathaniel, we found the Messiah. He's from Nazareth. And he's like, yeah, okay. Like anybody good or smart is going to come from Nazareth. And he laughs because that's how ridiculous it is. And you do more studies. People in Nazareth had a funny accent. And it's like, all right, take me seriously in the pulpit. And I'm going to talk with this really thick, let's say, New York accent. Hey, everybody, let's get some coffee. And we got some hot dogs right after. If I started talking like this, people wouldn't be able to take But that's exactly what that kind of place was. They had this really thick accent. And when people heard people from Galilee, they're like, I can't take them seriously. They're not even educated. That's exactly what happened to the disciples who were from Galilee. But where is the Savior of the world, the Messiah, growing up? Where did he end up? In Nazareth, in Sticktown. I want to put up one last verse for us to look at as we end. And so in Isaiah 53, he. God continues to develop this idea of a young, like a shoot in Isaiah fifty-one, and then he, in Isaiah eleven, it says a shoot and a branch will come out from the stump of Jesse, a branch from the Lord, right? And he and God continues to give Isaiah this prophecy of who this Messiah will be, and this idea is shown in Isaiah chapter fifty-three. Um, let me just read the six verses in the first in that uh, chapter. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The Bible, even before Jesus was born, is prophesying what's going to happen to this stick, this shoot, this branch that no one would respect. He would rise up and then we would kill him. And he would bear the responsibility and bear the shoulder, the sin of all mankind. How is uh, God Emmanuel? Meaning, how is God God with us? How does God relate to us? Every other thought process that we've had in our mind, every other religion philosophy is don't you have to climb the mountain? Don't you have to be at a certain level and then you get to meet God? If I want to meet a guru or some kind of monk or some teacher or Jedi master, whatever it is, you got to climb that mountain. And after you climb the mountain, maybe the master or teacher will have an audience with us, give us a nice word and be like, blow our minds like, whoa, that was awesome. I'm so happy I climbed this mountain. But how does God relate to his people? He goes down, not just to the low, but to the very, very low, doesn't he? He goes down to the lowest of lows, where even we wouldn't be like, that's, that's too low, that's too low. But he goes down, and that's where he relates to us. That's how he is with us, at our lowest point. And he starts to bring his people up from there. Who can escape God's salvation? Who is barred from his salvation? There is no one too low because he's, he went all the way down there for us. How does God relate to us as Emmanuel? He relates to us as Emmanuel in Jesus Christ who bears all of our sins. Goes down grieving a man of sorrows to bear our sins, but to forgive us. You think Jesus Christ came here and he had the best life ever? If I was Superman and I had all these powers, I'd have a pretty good life. You guys give me a hard time? Zip, I'm out. Like before you even saw me. But not Jesus. He stays. He stays through the roughest and toughest and darkest time of humanity and he even gets killed for it. You think Jesus was walking on this earth and be like, "Man, life is good. Every prayer that I'm praying is getting fulfilled." This is where we start to realize, "Wait a minute. This idea that once I believe in God, every single thing that I want get answered, where did that come from? Where did that come from?" Because even my Lord Jesus Christ when he was on this earth, what did he get? Did he get to go to Harvard? Did he get to eat whatever he wanted? Did he even have a house that he bought? And He's the one that's calling you now and saying, if you want to follow me, if you want to be a disciple, take up the cross and follow me. But you see, it doesn't end there because Jesus, even though he was crushed for our iniquities, he didn't stay in the ground. And God raised him up again from the dead. And those now that have faith and believe in him, no matter how low you go, God can take you up and raise you up from the dead and you can be with him for all eternity in heaven. That is the Jesus Christ that is being proclaimed in Matthew chapter 2 and all throughout the scriptures. That's our Savior. That's our Messiah who has gone through the very depths, the darkness, the lowest point in life, and he was there with us. That's our Emmanuel God. What does that mean for us now as a church? That means if we believe in Jesus and we recognize that God related to us in the lowest of times, how are we to relate to each other? That means even if you, my brother, and my sister, go through the lowest of times, I am called to be there with you. I am there to walk with you. And it's not just to suffer for suffering's sake. It's to suffer, yes, but to have hope that the sun, just as the sun was risen again, so will we. And in that hope, we get to live life. That's Emmanuel God. That's chapter 2 of Matthew. I can't wait till chapter 3. But that's just chapter 2, guys. And our God is worthy of praise and worship. He's an amazing, he's something that I couldn't even imagine. In fact, we continue to think of scenarios, superheroes, movies, and we can't even finish the script and the plot. Because if we continue to go down that logic, if I had power, what would I do? I'd always fail. Even when I tried to think of the best scenario possible. But God actually comes down and he goes to the lowest place possible to say, even if you go low, I am with you. Even though you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I am there with you. And he proves it and shows it to us in Jesus Christ. So we as a church also, disciples of Jesus Christ, are called to walk with each other, even if it's through the lowest of lows, because we know that in faith, we will be together in eternity in the highest of highs with him. Let's pray.